Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Actually, believe it or not, for 19th century millwork, that might be kind of an ideal scenario where the only thing that it was was boring. So, the, And the term Luddite, you know, really is something that we say to people who don't want to use Venmo or something. I, I would be one of those people. But, but I don't consider myself a Luddite. Being a Luddite means something completely different. It meant something very specific in the early 19th century, the Regency era in England. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about its um, obvious through lines to the present moment. Uh, we'll, either, we'll even do kind of an alternative history towards the end of the show and talk about what would have happened had the Luddites prevailed. So all of that is ahead. It, and it I don't know, it ties into a lot of other things that we've been thinking and talking about, uh, both on the air and at our meetings and using Slack, which is also something that you as a Luddite should be worried about. Anyway, we'll get to all of that. But it's time to uh, meet our first guest here. Um, we are going to uh, talk to Brian Merchant, uh, the technology columnist for the Los Angeles Times and the author of the forthcoming book, which is just basically right about what we're talking about right now, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech, which comes out next month. Uh, so, Brian Merchant, welcome to our show. Hey, Colin. Thanks for having me. So I've already said a little bit of it, but you can say it so much better. The history of the Luddites uh, is the early 1800s, and they are not people who are suspicious of the latest pocket watch uh, or some other new technology. They are people dealing with truly unsafe working conditions and exploitive working conditions. But flesh that out for us. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, so before they became the Luddites, they were cloth workers they were knitters. They were weavers. They were uh, they were uh, 
uh, cloth finishers. So uh, at the, around the turn of the century, the uh, the cloth industry in England is sort of the biggest industrial base of of workers in in the whole country. Um, so it's it's numerous. There's hundreds of thousands of them, and they have been working in much the same way uh, for hundreds of years, uh, bound to traditions and standards and norms. And many of them quite like these traditions and norms. Many of them get to work either in small shops or at home. Uh, the term cottage industry. Uh, applies to these to these workers who may have a loom in their in their house on the second floor. They work as a family. They work from home. They work thirty hours a week. They can take walks in the garden at breaks. They have a lot of autonomy and a lot of dignity, um, and they 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 quite like this situation. So what they see happening is as the industrial revolution, what what we now call the industrial revolution, starts to gather storm sort of goaded on by uh, a relatively small cohort of industrialists and people who recognize that hey we can start to make more money if we start to divide labor into these sort of systems and buildings that we now know as factories um and if we organize that labor and we use certain machines that are good at sort of expediting the use of that labor then we can make a lot more money so the cloth workers see this happening and they protest because it's pretty apparent uh, pretty quickly what is going what is going to happen here. They're going to lose that sort of idyllic, um, you know, not always glamorous. It's it's still, you know, filled with challenges, their, their, their lifestyle, but they have still have that control. And that's going to be moved into the factory where they're going to lose that sort of autonomy over their lives. So. Uh, and meanwhile, they're going to lose their wages too, right? Because one of the things that you can do in the factory is you can start uh, more efficiently producing a lot of stuff and charging less for it. And then the folks in the old system, the domestic system, are going to have to compete with that. So over the first decade of the 1800s, these cloth workers start to organize. Uh, you know, it's illegal to organize officially, but they lobby parliament. They say, hey, we're going to need some protections machinery and the way it's being used by entrepreneurs is going to cause a lot of suffering if it's allowed to sort of just be rolled out the way that this handful of sort of uh, early tech titan, I call it in the book, uh, has their way. So they lobby for things like a minimum wage. They lobby for some protections uh, uh, against the ways that the machinery can be used. They, they ask parliament to uphold the laws on the books that a lot of the entrepreneurs are uh, just kind of steamrolling over in a way that might be familiar to anyone who's watched the way that the Uber saga played out, where Uber went to city after city and said, no, no, we're a software company. We're not a taxi company, so we don't have to play by the same rules. And that way we can uh, pay our drivers a little bit less and we can charge uh, for less for fares. And we see now that that led to all kinds of problems. Um, so eventually, after about 10 years of this large and important uh, base of industrial workers getting ignored time and time again. Eventually, Parliament just throws out all of the old regulations, uh, and there's very little for them to fall back on. The economy is not particularly diversified, so they really have few options. And at, in 1811, they finally take up sort of a more uh, the dramatic uh, sort of uprising that we now. Um, 
that we now know the the Luddites for, and they they organize in a very particular way, and we can talk about that. And they become the Luddites, and what the Luddites do is they uh, they just dis- they they organize to destroy specifically the machines that are allowing sort of factorization, that are automating their work, that are uh, allowing entrepreneurs to staff the machines with uh, child labor instead of skilled labor. Um, and they go in and they break just those machines in in a rash of sort of organized uh, rebellion. Uh, and and then they take their name after an avatar, uh, a, a, an apocryphal figure named Ned Ludd, who we can talk about too. But so that's who the Luddites are. They are not dumb. They're not technophobic. In fact, they understand technology really, really well. They use it every day. A lot of them we would call technologists because they're so familiar and, and so skilled with technology. But they understood exactly the way that technology was going was being mobilized against them by a relatively small subset, by 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 the elite uh, of the day, and and they fought back. So yeah, and we should just say that the, this person Ned Ludd is probably a parable, probably kind of a folk tale that animates the spirit. Maybe there was a young apprentice named Ned Ludd, but their stories kind of well up around this apprentice who refused to work on a machine, maybe after it had severed the arm of a similarly aged young man or something like that. But it's like the ghost of Tom Joad or the story of John Henry. Uh, And it's a lot, Brian, like the story of Robin Hood. There doesn't have to be a real Robin Hood for that to be a story. And that seems to be the same thing with Ned Ludd. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, and so this is taking place, and it's it, it's unfolding initially in the exact same region as Robin Hood. So there's there is this history of sort of dissent, of sort of pushing back against uh, against things, against greed and against exploitation. So even if you say them back to back, Ned Ludd, Robin Hood, Ned Ludd. So it 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 starts to seem like yeah, it was sort of this this mythical figure who was made for the purpose. The first time we, we see him appear is uh, in, in sort of the recorded history or the in the, the newspaper records is, is about 1811, right after the Luddites start to show up. So they, it may very well be that they sort of made him up at the time, or they, as you said, seized onto this legend that had been uh, floating around and they just sort of made it their own. And as you said, it becomes a very effective er, uh, tool for sort of early decentralized uh, opposition or decentralized organizing, just kind of, you can kind of imagine Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter today, where you have this organizing principle, machinery is being used to exploit you. And you, if you, even if you don't have direct plug into where there was previous Luddite activity, you can sort of assume the avatar of Ned Ludd for your uh, your local group or your local uh, you know band of of workers, and and you can sort of agitate the same way, and that's what we see happen. It springs up across different regions in England in the in the cloth producing regions. Right, and I think another advantage of having that animating legend is that, or or a mythology that goes with it, is that it it'll maybe commands a certain um, well storytelling could be a very powerful thing. So ultimately. You know, the the reprisals against the Luddites are very, very strong and ferocious and um, and maybe partly because of the animating spirit of Ned Ludd, the Luddites develop a pretty strong code of omerta, right? I mean, that's part of the deal is you want to know who the other Luddites are? You're not getting it out of me. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah. So 
The Luddites, you know, were formed, uh, again, a, a very in regionally specific sort of uh, ways. And and because, again, of that mode of, of, of organizing, all you do have to do is adopt the name um, that the, the Luddites are uh, often sort of grouped in these very tightly knit sort of uh, cells, I guess you could say, because you know, it that's exactly what it is. It's a group of cloth workers who had been working together their entire lives at a small shop where they knew everybody around town. A lot of this is in relatively small towns as well as some of the major industrial centers. But so you knew just about everybody uh, who was part of uh, who would want and be interested in being part of the Luddites. And you could form these really incredible uh, tight-knit bonds of solidarity. And if though, for those who you, you didn't know, then yeah, they adopted this system of codes and of, uh, of secrecy. You had to take an oath and the oaths were taken very seriously, not only because uh, it soon became uh, a crime punishable by death uh, to, to take these oaths because this, the British crown made it so as a response to these up uprisings, but because the people in those cells took it so seriously. So you were really bound by these oaths and bound by your uh, declaration to be part of the Luddite Brotherhood uh, that they really did take it deadly seriously. So let's sort of look at how this might translate to the present moment. And I think it's important yeah. to say, and you, you, you made this point, uh, which is they didn't smash all machines. They weren't opposed to progress. In fact, some of the types of machines they targeted have been around for quite a while. This is more a way of using te technology to subjugate workers that they were bothered by. Um, and so let's fast forward to the present. Yes, we've had Robin Hood. Yes, we've had uh, Ned Ludd. And now another mythic figure comes onto the scene. His name is Andrew Yang. Uh, and uh, here he is talking to a nightmare figure named Tucker Carlson. This is A1G. He says that artificial intelligence and expanded automation could potentially cause violence in this country and that we need to do something about it right now. Andrew Yang joins us tonight. Andrew, thanks very much for coming on. And I meant that with sincerity. I haven't heard anybody in our political conversation describe the threat as clearly and compellingly as you have. Why should we be worried about automation? Well, if you look at the backdrop, we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, and those communities have never recovered. Where if you look at the numbers, half of the workers left the workforce and never worked again, and then half of that group filed for disability. Now, what happened to the manufacturing workers is now going to happen to the truck drivers, retail workers, call centers, fast food workers, and on and on through the economy as we evolve and technology marginalizes the labor of more and more Americans. So there is, of course, we all know what happened. Andrew Yang was nominated to be president by both major political parties. He's our president now, and we are safe. No, that's <laughs> the alternative history is in the third segment. I'm sorry. Uh, no, in a way, this this was just, I mean, it, it was very interesting to a lot of people, and Andrew Yang really did mobilize people. He is sending a similar message, right? I mean, he's not the only one doing this, but we're in a second machine age that has a whole bunch of new kind of paradigm shattering challenges, and we don't seem to be taking it very seriously. Maybe you can expand on that. Yeah, you know, 
there's a lot of sort of problematic elements about Andrew Yang's political program. <laughs> in fact, he's kind of abandoned a lot of this talk uh, in favor of doing his new um, third party, whatever that is. But um, but he does raise some valid points. And he was talking about this compellingly in a way that that few others at the time were sort of uh, talking about so loudly. Um, and one interesting side note that I'll make before I dive into answering your question directly is that one of his policy proposals is that we do something like a value added tax that's kind of specifically tailored to towards people that are doing automating where you where you tax basically the automation or the extra productivity of automation and you use that and kind of funnel it back in his case to pay for, uh, you know, a universal basic income where you give everybody money or something like that. But the Luddites, 200 years ago, the before they organized as the Luddites, you had pre-proto-Luddite folks in parliament saying, what if we did this? What if we took the uh, automated sort of machinery and we taxed the extra cloth it produced and used that to pay for retraining programs or things that could, you know, give us a little buffer? So they're really on the same page in terms of what we've been thinking about these things in much the same way, in much the same formation for 200 years. And Andrew Yang, you know, he really, I think maybe he's gets a little into the, the dramatics of it. Um, you know, he has these scenarios where truck drivers are going to be blockading the, the highways after they lose their jobs to automated trucks. And it's not clear a lot of that is happening right now. But I think he's really one of the few talking about like Luddite sensibilities. He's really one of the few raising the alarm bells uh, in, in that in that fashion. Um, and again, there's a lot of nuance to pick apart what's what we should be concerned about and what we shouldn't be concerned about. But he is right that a lot of big companies right now are hoping to automate jobs. You know, it's not clear they can automate at the scale he's hoping they'll be able to, but they're going to be doing things like using automation, using AI to get leverage over workers to do things like they did back in the Luddites day, like push down wages. Right. And, you know, it does seem to me that if you don't talk about this directly and concretely and 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 spell out what's what's the problem, what isn't the problem, um, you leave a lot of unfocused anxiety and rage on the table. I mean, not insignificantly. And I mean, I experienced this directly talking to them. A lot of pretty fervent Trump reporter, uh, supporters, the kind of people who would show up at rallies, their second choice was Bernie Sanders, uh, who doesn't have you know a political profile, anything like Trump. But there was this sense of some kind of age is ending uh, and yeah. we are going to be left out and no one cares about that. Uh, and it seems to me if you don't have something uh, as specific and as intelligent and, and as focused as 19th century Luddism, what's left is just sort of unfocused rage against the machine. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and that's I think you can explain a good deal of that sort of anger and disaffection. You know, some of it from from this. There's an interesting study from, I think, Brookings Institute uh, where they looked at the regions where automation had taken root most deeply and they found that where there was more automation there was more support for trump um and you know it's it's a little neat and you can't really you, it, you can't really necessarily distill direct correlation from that but i think it's an interesting thing to think about where these jobs were uprooted and left uh with nothing really uh coming to re re replace those jobs you do sort of get this uh this disaffection this uh this 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 more diffuse anger and today it is sort of being spread around but i will say it is starting to be 
more uh, concentrated in the directions where it where it should be. We are seeing more animosity towards big tech, less interest in granting them leeway uh, when they make sort of sweeping decisions about using this or that kind of AI or automation. So I think our uh, focus has been sort of uh, pointed in the right direction generally. And, and you know, we're helped out by groups like the Writers' Strike, uh, the WGA and SAG, who have really sort of identified uh, AI and the use of technology as something that studios and, and bosses are, are hoping to use against them. And in many cases, quite correctly so. Artists and illustrators, they're organizing against the use of generative AI in newsrooms uh, with very real grievances. You talk to writers, uh, copywriters, you talk to artists and illustrators, um, and this year you'll hear the same story a lot. They've seen less work. They're getting less work because folks are using generative AI instead of and instead of turning to them. And that's uh, leading to a whole new sort of frontier, a whole new sort of, uh, I guess, battle lines being drawn, you could call it. Right. Um, I mean, the battle lines are all over the place. And we're going to talk uh, very specifically about uh, the writer strike and the actor strike and, and, and uh, AI in the next segment. But it also, not to be too cute about this, but one of the apparatus or our apparatuses that the Luddites were uh, not in favor of was something called a gig loom. And ironically, the gig economy now, which has nothing to do with the gig loom, um, is one of, one of the places where all this is happening. There's there's a price to whatever convenience and, and economies are afforded to you by Uber and Lyft and stuff like that. There's, there's just ways in which a lot of the stuff that we use is produced by so-called contract labor uh, yeah. to whom employers have no responsibility. But, but I want to also just, as we kind of wind up here, just talk about the, the unfashionability, the stigma of adopting any kind of anti-tech position. You know, I mean, you, you really do get accused of being the old man yelling at trains uh, right. if, in fact, you, you question any of this stuff and whether you have to do it. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that gets processed and maybe even if there's sort of a way to talk back to it? Yeah, 100 percent. And I, I, the first step is knowing that from the get-go, this was a very uh, direct and uh, purposeful campaign. You could even call it you could even call it a propaganda effort, almost because as soon as the Luddites crop up, uh, you see this sort of language that uh, from especially coming from elites, coming from uh, the crown at the time, the, the state um, and, and and the industrialists, they really go to pains to paint the Luddites as deluded as. Uh, misguided wretches who know not what they do kind of thing where they're just they're smashing the machine because they don't understand that it's the future and this is the portrait that they're selling to the public or trying to um, because well, I wanted to say this earlier because they are hugely popular at mm -hmm. first they are like Robin Hood they are people will come out into the streets and cheer them as they are smashing machines they have one public opinion in the beginning of their of, of their uprising um, and because of all the things that the state then does, not least of this sort of propaganda campaign, you have the the prince putting out proclamations that's painting them as deluded. As soon as the Luddites go to trial, they the prosecutors are entering into the record. Just that's pretty much their case against the Luddite that these guys are uh, are, are are misguided wretches following some being they've been brainwashed by some someone with dark motivations and. Uh, and this is all really purposeful. The Theodore Rozak, uh, uh, the cultural critic uh, from, from in the 90s, wrote had a, had a really great line. And he said, if the Luddites didn't exist, 
then these folks, the industrialists and the and 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 the elites would have to invent them because you need kind of a boogeyman to to paint as the oppositional force, someone to blame, a straw man uh, for 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 having any sort of uh, uh, criticism of the technologies you're hoping to kind of pass through, barrel through and profit mightily from. To this day, you know, Google and Facebook and 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 Apple, they all present us with the products and they they ram them through. Uh they, you know, they have concentrated such a mass uh and amassed such power that they don't really feel like they have to answer to anyone. It has become a, a pretty profoundly undemocratic process. And in part, they have done so by painting this sort of mythology, where if you do protest any slice of this, that extends to disliking surveillance, disliking uh, your job being automated away, then yes, you get to be the recipient of the term Luddite or the equivalent, uh, somebody who's backwards looking, somebody who doesn't get it, because it profits the elites mightily to have this sort of assumption baked into the firmament of our economy and our culture. Uh, and it's, you know, one that we really do need to challenge. And we do have to say, you know, Thomas Pynchon was right. It is okay to be a Luddite. It is okay to, to, to especially single out the parts that are pernicious to society or hurtful to commonality, as the Luddites would have put it in the day, and say no say no to things. And we are beginning to see that. We're seeing municipalities ban facial recognition. Again, I mentioned the writers and the artists. We're seeing them say no to generative AI. We're seeing Luddism kind of emerge as a viable strategy for dealing with some of this stuff. And we will be the better for it because technological development is something we've long accepted as something that is done to us often by very big companies. We do not need to accept it. It is not determined that that should be the way uh, that we decide who benefits from technology. And we have a real opportunity here to uh, to, to change that thinking. And I hope the Luddites uh, can help us do it. All right. I can't, we can't wait for the book. Brian Merchant, the book is Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. This deals with what we've been talking about today, Luddism. Brian Merchant, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to focus in on that whole question of generative AI and its role in the creation of culture. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
So we've gone from gig looms to computers, dirty or otherwise. Uh, That's where a a lot of the battles will be fought, have been fought already. To talk a little bit more about this and about the nature of work, uh, Gavin Mueller is an assistant professor of new media and digital culture at the University of Amsterdam and the author of Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Are Right About Why You Hate Your Job. Uh, Gavin Mueller, welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I mean, let's just go, let's just build right on what Brian Merchant talked about a couple of times. We are seeing right now two uh, interconnected strikes uh, in the entertainment industry, the writers and the actors. In each case, a sticking point in the contract with the studios has been the use of generative AI. And and the one involving the actors is really creepy because it does appear that it's possible simply to scan one image uh, of an actor and essentially, quote, employ, unquote, that actor going forward just by by rendering them and, and putting them into scenes and and just just adding them, photoshopping or movie shopping them them in with the actors. The question is with the writers. The question is, you know, can they can AI be allowed to generate scripts that are used uh, by the holders of these contracts? So, what do you see there, and, and how do you link it um, constructively to Luddism? Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, we have a very clear uh, case or cases where uh, it seems. Uh, that technology will be used to uh, uh, replace or otherwise augment work in ways that will uh, will uh, undermine the pay and and other conditions that writers and actors and other people that work in in uh, creative industries uh, have currently. So so we're looking at something uh, quite similar. Uh, and I think the other thing that we see is that. Um, that the writers and the actors are very perceptive in understanding that these technologies are a direct threat to the way that things are being done uh, and that they uh, immediately highlighted uh, the the use of AI as a problem. In fact, they've uh, been scanning actors for a few years now, uh, which was not something that a lot of people were paying much attention to, uh, but now has become uh, sort of front and center on the agenda. And so to me, this is, uh, you know, really right out of the Luddite playbook, right? To, 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 to dramatically show the technology here is being used as a weapon to undermine working conditions. And I think the other thing that we want to be really conscious of, and something that was also true of the original uh, Luddite movement that, that Brian so, so ably uh, uh, encapsulated for us, is the Luddites were also concerned about the overall quality of what was coming out of their industry. They were skilled uh, technicians, as Brian said. They were proud of their work. Uh, and the goods that were coming out of the, the these uh, textile factories were incredibly inferior in quality to what the weavers had been producing. 
And so one argument that the, the workers who eventually would become Luddites said was like, you're going to, you're ruining our reputation as an industry. We're going to, uh, people respected what we produced and now they, they're going to associate us with this cheaply, uh, cheap mass produced stuff. And I think we have a real uh, big issue, a very, very similar issue here. Um, I'm a university professor, so I'm sort of on the front lines of ChatGPT when it comes to grading papers. Uh, and I can tell you the quality uh, is, is really not there. Uh, it's very polished, it's grammatically correct, and it's completely dead. It's uh, very empty. And I think we'll, this is another kind of risk that we'll run. That's something that will uh, increase you know, a stock price of, of, of a, a media company or earn a CEO a bonus is going to come at the expense not only of the pay and working conditions of creative workers, but it will also come at the expense of the quality of our entertainment, things that we love, right? The shows that we love, the films that we're passionate about. Uh, could very, uh, very, uh, it's very possible that they'll degrade in quality with the use of these tools, which uh, are quite hyped, as, as Brian mentioned, you know, the inevitable future. Um, but I think when you actually see what they can do are, you know, not actually, uh, you know, don't ex exactly uh, feel like they're ushering in some sort of uh, cybernetic utopia. Uh, they fall far short of, of what I would call real, real talent. Right. And I think the point that you're making, too, about the output uh, is a really important one for everybody. And and it was true for the Luddites, too, that if, you you know, you got a, a bad blanket or a bad sweater or something like that, and you're colder than you otherwise would be. Here, particularly when we're talking about content creators, you have, as you say, a, a kind of deanimated culture being pumped out and probably being devo devoured pretty enthusiastically. It could be argued that a lot of our popular culture has been deanimated for some time under other under other pretexts. But that's sort of bad for us. It, it's bad in a very long-term way if we lose track of elements of humanism uh, and, and human creativity and culture. It's really uh, quite funny because for a long time, the argument made for introducing automation into labor processes was that, well, you know, work isn't that great anyway. These machines will, uh, they'll alleviate a lot of the drudgery and a lot of the burdens. And therefore, you'll have the time to do the, the more interesting things with your life. We've been promised, in fact, the predicted that uh, machines would do so much of our work that we would have 15-hour work weeks. This was something that uh, the economist John Maynard Keynes was saying, uh, you know, almost 100 years ago, uh, and it hasn't happened. And now we're at the point where the promise is not that the machines will relieve drudgery, that the machines will actually uh, start taking away the very things that people want to do with their free time, which is create, to tell stories, to make art, the things that so many people feel passionate about and that so many people wish that they had more time to dedicate their lives to. Uh, it's it's quite a, 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 a darkly ironic scenario um, that we're being presented here. So I think this is also uh, something that we really need to recognize. I think you're right. The, the technology is not the, maybe the only force that uh, drives our entertainment into sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of less uh, uh, elevating kind of, of, of places. There are other pressures as well. But certainly it's, it's a quite a, a stark 
uh, sort of vision that we're being presented with, that, that the things that we, we love will not even be made by people, and that, in fact, uh, it will be impossible for anyone to dedicate their lives to doing this, to coming up with wonderful ideas, great stories, uh, you know, sort of brain-melting artwork, uh, even video games, right? That'll all be done by uh, machines. Uh, I think this is uh, this is really interesting to me because it's actually a betrayal of what historically has been a lot of the rhetoric that that celebrates automation. I think another part of this, there's so much to talk about, but I know that you um, are something of a student and an observer of Frederick Taylor, uh, who early in the 20th century was trying to turn workers into more like soldiers uh, and soldiers who just knew their one job and took their orders and didn't think about the entirety of any kind of system, uh, just obedient uh, cogs in, uh, in a larger machine. And I th think one thing you can look at today from a sort of Luddist uh, perspective is the next step, which is turning workers into almost transhumans to more like machines. I mean, an Amazon warehouse worker is kind of monitored and beeped in and scanned in and out and is more than just a soldier at this point, but in a way, slowly being turned in to a machine that's monitorable and controllable in the way that, that Taylor might have dreamed of as he fell asleep some night. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because uh, one of precisely one of the slogans of the Amazon uh, workers movement is we're not robots. Mm -hmm. uh, they are so tightly controlled and constrained uh, by the technologies that they work with that set the pace, uh, that monitor all their movements and feed them back into the system and that isolate them from one another. Uh, I think Taylor would be uh, overjoyed. It's really the realization of so much of what he uh, what he wanted to accomplish and and failed to accomplish in the factories uh, of his day. His main insight was uh, if you if you if workers have um, a comprehensive knowledge of the production process and an ability to control it, then they will have uh, autonomy over the production process, they will set the pace, they will say whether they're going to work or whether they're not, and how work will be done. So the first step in uh, asserting managerial authority over workers would be to isolate them, and uh, just as you described, set them on one task. They only know how one thing is done. The other thing was to survey how everything is done and collect as much what we call data uh, today so that you have a completely comprehensive understanding of the entire process, but that that understanding is only held by managers and owners. It's kept away from the workers. And the purpose of that is once you have control over that process, once you isolate workers from themselves, then you can uh, accelerate the pace of production, uh, and you have undermined the forms of solidarity and struggle that workers up till now uh, had been using. So yeah, Amazon is is like Taylor's dream. Uh, workers don't even get break rooms uh, in some of these facilities. So when they when they do have time off, they end up sitting in their cars by themselves. They're not talking about and their work. They're not talking about what the next step is. And if they're on the road, they're peeing in plastic bottles. So um, just in order to meet all the, the clock stuff. So last question, really. I, I could talk to you a lot longer, but we're running out of time here. And I sure. think the, the question is, 
what do we break? Uh, I mean, in some ways, being a Luddite now might, for example, Lily Tyson, the senior producer whom you've been talking with, and I share a distrust of Venmo, and we have this kind of Bartleby-like, you know, I I would prefer not to Venmo. I (laughs) I just don't, I'm not going to do that. But that doesn't really strike me as a transformative attitude, and it's less clearer what we need to break and just, I mean, metaphorically break, if we're going to break anything, is it maybe the distribution choke points, you know, particularly for things like culture? I mean, do we need to break Warner and Max and that whole big conglomerate? Um, what, what's a response that would mean anything in a Luddist way? I mean, you can look at Luddism at hap- happening at, at various scales. I think refusal is actually a great place to start, to just say no, to tell other people you're saying no, to say it's okay to say no. I think Brian said, said almost the exact same thing, right? It's okay to say no. Um, I think uh, when it comes to the workplace, you say, all right, you know, what technology uh, do we not like and how is it uh, what leverage do we have? Uh, you might, depending on the level of organization, have the ability to collectively say, we're not going to work in this particular way. We're not going to have these types of working conditions or these pay levels. This is precisely what the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild are trying to do right now. And they're, they're using the kind of uh, uh, the organize, organizations that they have uh, and the leverage that they have to, to try to, to move things in, in the right direction. And they're mustering public support for it as well. Uh, and then we can also think about uh, at, the, at an even larger scale, well, let's talk about um, you know, reforms, right? It, it seems like kind of beyond the pale, like, wow, what, what, you know, what, could we actually ask the government to, to, to step in and, 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 and make some rules about this? Um, but actually, uh, Taylor, Frederick Taylor, um, that's actually how he was defeated. He was unsuccessful at implementing uh, his, mech- his procedures in the factories that he was operating in. He picked a bad fight the uh, Watertown Arsenal uh, in Massachusetts, so not too far from a lot of your listeners. Uh, and they, uh, they not only refused to do what he asked, refused to be monitored, refused to, to operate by his principles, but they also contacted a, a, a congressional representative. Taylor had to give testimony uh, in front of the government. Uh, they were not, he was not a very sympathetic individual and he didn't do a very good job of making his case. And the government said, you know what? Uh, this the, the the factory workers are right. They don't have to work this way. The guy you fired for not for not uh, agreeing to be timed, you have to reinstate him. And Taylor, you're out. And Taylor was uh, so devastated, he had a nervous breakdown. Uh, died a few years later and spent his uh, remaining time on Earth uh, uh, actually uh, trying to invent new types of golf clubs. <laughs> Are you listening, Jeff Bezos? Actually, he probably is listening. We have to stop there, but I think that's that's a great place to stop. Uh, and I'll just check, too. Alexa, is it okay if I stop using technology? And she says no. Uh, Gavin Mueller is the assistant professor of new media and digital culture at the University of Amsterdam, author of Breaking Things at Work. The Luddites are right about why you hate your job. Let's take a break. We'll come back after this.
And we're back. Um, our technical producer today is Jedi Master Eugene Amatruda. He cannot be replaced by technology. He knows more than the tech does. Uh, Lily Tyson is our senior producer. And here in our final uh, segment, Miriam A. Cherry uh, is going to join us, a professor of law at St. John's University in New York City, faculty director of the Labor and Employment Law Center. She's the author of Work in the Digital Age, a course book on labor technology and regulation. And very much for our purposes, also the author of The Future Encyclopedia of Ludism. We'll explain uh, about that right now. Miriam Cherry, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So what you did was construct an, a counterfactual history, a one in which the Luddites prevail. Um, so first of all, explain why you did that. So I was actually writing as part of a, a larger book, a project. The book was called Economic Science Fictions. And we were asked to really be creative and think about things like alternate his, alternate history. And that's really what I wanted to do with this piece. So I am, I write a lot about um, the, the work as it is right now, some of the issues uh, legally that, that workers face. So earlier we talked about the gig economy and I do a lot of work on that. Um, but I also am interested in the future and you can't really understand the future of work unless you understand where we where we started with the Luddites. And so, um, you know, this is this was of great interest to me. So the idea is that they prevail. They are successful. Uh, and so their movement turns into at least part of public discourse, uh, one that, prom- as you say, promotes smart growth and democratic technology policies. So what would that look like now? Let's imagine that here in 2023, we are now the heirs uh, to this process, which incorporates a lot of the thinking uh, of the Luddites. What does the world look like? How is it different? Yeah, so I really took as the jumping off point for this story, there's there's other authors that write a great deal of alternate history. And they, it, or in France, they call this Uchronie, mm-hmm. the idea that you, you take that pivotal moment in history and, and then look at what would have happened if, if it came out differently. And so in in the story, I really wanted to explore what that would look like for modern day. And, you know, just starting with a number of things that would happen differently, because there there would be some kind of prioritization. If we're really talking about democratic processes around technology, then we wouldn't have the techno determinism that your previous guest talked about, the idea that technology is just something that's done to us. But rather, we it would be a humanistic vision, I think, where it would be um, you know, groups of workers that would talk about which pr- which processes did they want to automate, which processes are dangerous, um, which processes do they need help with? Or they're they're boring. Right? Things that that it would make everyone uh, everyone's working life better if they were automated. Yeah, and I think you know it leads to more critical reflection and evaluation uh, of what we're building. What's it going to do to us to build it? How are we going to build in freedom and maybe breaks from technology, uh, things like that? I thought it was also interesting. Oh, we're going to run out of time so fast here. I apologize. But one of the things I liked about your construction was, uh, in this case, Ned Ludd is a real person. And he also has, if he's the kind of Jesus of the movement, he has a a Paul the Apostle, right? It's uh, He has this Lieutenant Melor, who's maybe the person— you always need a visionary and then the person who can kind of translate it into an action plan. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting choice that you made. Well, a lot of the story was actually based on real events. So certainly when um, earlier guests were talking, I just found myself nodding along. I mean, um, 
you know, where, where it started getting, uh, where I started sort of inventing or, or engaging in some storytelling was in, in trying to create Lud as an actual person. And then also the, the right-hand man, so to speak, who was, who was definitely helping. Um, and I, you know, I, I would have liked to tell more of the stories of the, of the rank and file as well, because uh, Luddites were, um, Overly, there were an overrepresentation of women and children versus what you would expect, um, maybe in, in the labor movement uh, if we look at it today. So, uh, very interesting, um, very interesting set of folks for sure. Yeah, and does uh, Ned is a daughter, right? Who keeps it going on after that, or is it Mello? That's right. That's right. That's right. So in the story, I just uh, needed a way to kind of figure out a connection back to the initial events with the Luddites. And some of that was to to have more um, sort of the the female characters in this case they were in, in my invention, um, but just to sort of keep this going over a period of time so that the and then to think about it as a worldwide movement also not just centered on industrializing England. Um, there the Luddites are you know in, in some ways just this very particular moment in in time, and and to sort of generalize that and then to have some things that would be traditions that that people would use, like uh, eating a meal of fish and chips to kind of take you back to uh, maybe the origins of where the movement came from. Yeah. And, and so this is a movement, this becomes a movement that puts people over property. There's a, a, something kind of familiarly radical and revolutionary about that idea, right? That the people should should have the power and decisions should be made about people as opposed to maximizing profit or stock worth or anything else. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that doesn't mean necessarily sacrificing progress. I think it's more of a directed prioritization is, is sort of what I had them engage in, in the, in the, in the story is it, the idea would be that there's a lot of discussion of what things are most important. And it, it's not that, it's not that innovation is stifled or that people don't care about technology. They they do. Uh, it's just more that there's a decision about what those goals are rather than uh, having the opposite, which is, um, you know, there is no prioritization. Technology is what it is. And then everyone has to accept it because if you don't, you will get left behind or have those negative stories that we talked about before that were told to discredit the Luddites. Um, and again, using the word Luddite is kind of a negative term um, that, of someone who doesn't like technology or is against progress. There's a little bit also, we have to stop here, but there's a little bit over also of that kind of that seven generation uh, idea that we uh, inherit or we should inherit and adopt from indigenous peoples. Just think about, you know, think about the implications of whatever change you're making over seven generations, which is ordinarily not how we think. Thank you, Miriam A. Cherry, uh, author of Work in the Digital Age, a course book on labor technology and regulation. And in the MIT Technology Review, check out her Future of Encyclopedia of Luddism. 